Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome to the Exam Study Experts podcast. In today's episode, I'll be welcoming the whole little Exam Study Expert team to the show for the first time live together, namely Drs. Carrie Edinburgh and Dr. Alex Hibble. Kerry may be a familiar name to anyone who reads our blog, as she's our lead blog editor who helps translate some of our best ideas and turn them into compelling blog articles for you to read, as well as researching and writing on topics uh, from scratch, such as her excellent article on imposter syndrome, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes. Alex is, uh, alongside me, one of the two people that do uh, our speaking work in schools and universities, and she also helps out a lot with our research programme, The Revision Census. Both Kerry and Alex are united in having one-upped me, uh, academically speaking, by going and getting PhDs. Uh, So I thought it would be a really interesting episode to have them both on together for a roundtable discussion about their PhD experiences. I wasn't disappointed. I thought we had a great conversation. Both are really good at giving a very candid and unvarnished view of the struggles they had. Both had their fair share of ups and downs, to say the least. Uh, But they also speak very passionately about the good bits too. So whether you are a PhD candidate now, uh, considering it in future, or maybe just interested in some of the lessons uh, that might apply to your own studies in your own life, I think there's lots for everyone to take from this conversation. It's a really interesting one. One theme I want you to listen out for in particular is that of mindset. Notice how often it comes up in various forms, whether we're talking about imposter syndrome, self-confidence, getting your work-life balance in order, having the courage to ask for help, and, and how mindset kind of interplays with productivity questions like time management, prioritisation and scheduling. I highlight this theme of mindsets in particular because next month, November, we'll be running a very special mindset course for students and scholars just like you. It's called The Scholar's Way and it's designed to help you make big leaps forward in all the most common mindset challenges that we see among scholars of all kinds, uh, whether you're undertaking research like Kerry and Alex, uh, or whether you're preparing for your next big set of exams uh, at school, university or as part of your career journey. If you'd like to find out more about that course and how you can join us, uh, go to examstudyexpert.com forward slash TSW. That's TSW as in the scholar's way. Uh, So examstudyexpert.com forward slash TSW. I really hope you can join us for that. It should be a really, really special experience and I think a huge amount for for, for you all to gain from that programme. So without further ado, let's meet our special guests for today and get right into today's conversation. Hi, I'm Alex. I recently finished a PhD from the University of Oxford in experimental psychology. I studied the visual system and whether different pathways in the visual system use different calculations to process moving objects. I'm Kerry. I did a PhD a few years ago now on the experience of listening to music Um, in the Second World War. So that was looking at um, historical archive sources about people's experiences of music 
during the war. So we have both arts and sciences represented here today, which is a nice, nice balance, I guess. Kerry, my first question is, is why? So, so we knew each other as, as undergraduates. You were, you were reading music when I was natural sciences student, and that's, that's when we met originally. Um, what then was it that compelled you to stay on and do a PhD? Okay, so um, during my third year of undergrad, I got really into the medieval musical manuscripts, um, learning old notations. That was a really fascinating topic. And then I just didn't really know what I wanted to do afterwards. And the opportunity to do a master's presented itself. So I did my master's on something very different to my PhD. It was um, reading 14th and 15th century Italian manuscripts, um, looking through the notation and kind of studying them for the human element. My PhD supervisor-to-be, um, I also worked with him at Cambridge, where I studied my undergrad and my master's. And he kind of was telling me about this project that he had coming up, which was the Listening Experience Database Project at the Open University, where he also worked. He kind of persuaded me that maybe applying could be fun, but it was a very different topic. So I kind of had to look at it as a another approach into kind of human history um, and, and music and how things all fitted together. So a bit of a segue, and mostly because I just find research really fun and having the opportunity to do that was great. Alex, same question to you. Yeah, so I also have a, well, I have a grown-up reason and then I have a slightly shameful reason that I wouldn't uh, wouldn't necessarily bring up to, um, you know, other academics or working professionals. And certainly not somewhere as public as the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, no, I would never out myself like this. Um, so the grown-up reason is that I've always been incredibly curious and um, this was something that actually had one or two... Uh, not disagreements with my supervisor about, but several times along the PhD journey, he would say, can you stop being so curious and just focus? So I've always been really curious and it led me from my undergraduate to my master's. My master's was, again, very different. I was looking at a sort of cross-section of behavioural economics and social psychology. How do people, how do people's hormone profiles change in response to money? And, and then I was really interested in the visual system always. And so the PhD kind of followed from that curiosity and just, I want to know more and more and more. And you get to a certain point in scientific research where there aren't any answers and you have to ask better questions and find the data for yourself. And that was really incredible sort of thinking that I've asked a question no one else has asked before and I'm going to be the first one to see the data and try and construct an argument. And that was, you know, the the driving force that I would probably tell people about more often. I, I think the slightly less um, public reason would be that I've always really suffered with imposter syndrome, which, you know, I, I think when I say this, people look at me a bit baffled because they're, oh, you have a first from Oxford and, you know, you did relatively well at school, not fantastically, but you've always been academically able. So why on earth do you have imposter syndrome? And I think pursuing the master's, I was then like, okay, well, they think I'm good enough to get onto a master's place. And then pursuing the, the DPhil at Oxford was then again, okay, do they think I'm good enough to do research? Am I really smart enough? Have they, you know, have I fooled them at two interviews? And is it the third interview that they're going to stop and be like, hang on a second, you're an idiot, get out of here. Um, so I think part of it was just trying to satisfy that issue for myself. Like, am I really good enough to be here and doing research among these brilliant people? Because, you know, working at Oxford, working at Cambridge, you are surrounded by geniuses. And it, I was really curious to see if I could actually cut it working alongside them. I also had a serious case of imposter syndrome as a PhD student that went even as far as walking into my Viva and thinking they were going to be like, what What the heck is this? You know, what have you given us? This is not really a real academic document. Um, I feel like that's something that a lot of people 
maybe don't want to admit to having. Yeah, and, and to jump in on that, I think it's something where I thought getting another degree would really cure that, and it didn't. And even even the first year after I'd finished and you know, people were sort of calling me doctor, I just felt like such a fraud. And it, it's really taken quite a while for me now to be like, oh, okay, this is, you know, every, everyone, you know, with a few exceptions I speak to seems to have the same experience. Um, and yeah, that sort of awareness that, you know, because even after my PhD, we were, I finished at the same time as a few friends and we all went away to celebrate and two of us were sitting there being like, well, should we go back and do another master's or, or maybe another PhD? So you get so fixated on this idea that the more qualifications you have the more likely you are to really believe in your own intelligence your own drive and um, it's taken a while to actually realize that that's just not the case no definitely not but there are other things I think that kind of maybe convince you of your worth your personal worth I think for me a lot of my imposter syndrome stemmed from negative responses from say my supervisors Having had some bad experiences with my supervisors and negative feedback, it becomes so that the negatives are all that you see. Um, so what I think for me, later on with other professional relationships like these ones, having the positives there and kind of being reminded of them is really helpful because it can be much easier to sort of fall into a spiral of, oh, this negative thing happened once. That's they're probably right. It's much harder to kind of look at all your achievements and your accomplishments and the good feedback that you've got. And um, so when I was writing about imposter syndrome a couple of years ago for the blog, I came across the concept of keeping a file of like a physical file of like positive stuff. So when you really don't believe that you can do things or that you're not qualified to be giving this talk or you're just, you know, you're not the right person for this, then you can just go back and look at all these times when other external people who you trust and admire kind of told you that you did a good job and kind of makes you believe it a bit more do, do you actually do you do that out of interest no but I mean I do have a lot of them in my emails so yeah. I know that I can go and find them you know where to look if you need them yeah <laughs> nice the praise file actually uh something that we're featuring in next month's course this the scholar's way on on mindset that's lesson 27 so day day 27 we're going to be talking about praise file in a little bit more detail and that will be the uh, the exercise the challenge for the day 27 of that so uh do look out for the scholar's way uh coming your way next next month um alex uh turning to you then yeah so on this idea of sort of imposter syndrome anything that you f- would have found helpful yeah so I mean, the thing I found helpful since then is obviously having, you know, left academia. I mean, obviously, I'm still, you know, deeply involved in research with the revision census, but it's not now what I spend 100% of my time doing. And I think it would be that if I could go back and tell my younger self something, it would be that, you know, yes, growing up, you know, you, you took this label of like, you know, the intellectual one, the smart kid. And that works for a while as motivation to sort of push yourself to revise for exams, but it became my entire identity. And so then, as Kerry said, when I got occasional negative feedback or if I was surrounded by people who found topics easier, um, it then I then internalised that as I'm not good enough. And because this academic image was the entire encapsulation of my, you know, how I saw myself, that was the issue. And I think if, if I could go back, trying to develop other strands of my personality, having other hobbies, having a better work-life balance, I think with PhD research, it can be very easy just to sort of eat, sleep, breathe, 
your research, it's never off. I was working late nights. I was working weekends. I would feel incredibly guilty if I ever took time out to go to like a friend's birthday party because at the back of your head, there's always this idea that I could be doing some data analysis. I could be running some experiments. I could be reading. I could be writing. And so actually, if I'd put better bounds on my time and sort of treated it almost like a nine to five job, I think I would have had time when I wasn't just a PhD student and I didn't see myself worth as how is the PhD project going? Because they always have these ebbs and flows and there's bits where it's going great and you can ride that high, but you always have these crushing valleys where you put an error in your code or the data doesn't turn out right or you you find someone's published an incredible paper that disproves a theory you've been mulling on for a while. Or just is a a whole chapter that you were planning to write and somebody else has just written and published it and you've got to find something else to do. (laughs) The the scoundrels, how dare they? (laughs) I know. Does the does the idea of the self worth and and you were talking about it in terms of you know having uh, Tim, I think it's quite similar to an idea Tim Ferriss talks about where he talks about having multiple ways to win the day. So you know if your day in your research or your primary day job or your whatever you're pursuing is your kind of main focus, you know if that hasn't if you haven't had a good day there, then you know maybe you you know you you, you go home via the gym and you add two pounds to what you can bench press. I, I don't know if that's a realistic way to talk about working out. Like I'm not really familiar with that way of working out, but like it just came to me. Uh, or or like you shave three seconds off your five k time. Um, I do know about that. Um, uh, and and then that gives you another way to to kind of feel good about yourself and having made some prep. Or you know maybe you go then go home and make a delicious meal. So you, like you've got some other ways to find sort of satisfaction from the day multiple ways to win the day i think that's that's a really nice concept um i want to just pick up on that idea of work-life balance though so y- you saying you know it was it was a definitely a struggle again any kind of lessons from hindsight so i guess if someone's going through a similar set of feeling and i imagine that feeling is very very common like there's always more you can do um what would your advice for them be 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 really strict so I would get to the end of days and just think just one more analysis or just read one more paper. And um, if you are enjoying it, it's really hard to stop. You get into this flow state and everything's working so well. And you're like, it's fine that I'm working till midnight because I'm having fun. And that's great. But then the next morning, it's really hard to get up at eight and cycle to the lab because you were exhausted and you didn't have that time to wind down. So actually, you know, the days when things are not going well, not just chasing after things that aren't working, because that was also something I did. There were lots of days where things weren't going well and I'd continue to try and hopelessly run analyses I didn't really understand. So stopping when things are going badly and stopping when things are going well and just saying, this is the cutoff that I've set for myself. Maybe having a little wiggle room, so you know it's between 5 and 5.30, so I can just finish up that last task. But enforcing that and knowing that it affects the days that are coming afterwards. It's not, I, I think I was so fixated on what am I doing today that I lost sight of the big picture of, actually, I need to be able to work and focus tomorrow. And that's stealing, you know, these hours I'm spending this evening are stealing time from tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good way of way of looking at it. Carrie, what was your experience with, with work-life balance and, and boundaries? Um, I had quite a strange PhD experience, I suppose, doing it via the Open University because it's not really a place where there are a lot of students or necessarily a lot of academics all the time. So I, I was lucky I got given an office in the music department humanities department at the Open University but there would almost never be anyone there so going there was great in terms of the you know you could kind of sit down and focus you have that environment and then there's a certain point at which everybody else has left the building and you can hear the hoovering being done and you think I should probably leave before (laughs) I get locked out but it was also very isolating 
that I didn't really have any peers around most of the time to talk to. I perhaps that's different for probably definitely differently for other universities. I have friends who did PhDs at the same time who worked in like rooms with a bunch of other PhD students or in labs and things, or maybe just a disciplinary thing because a lot of humanities research doesn't you know involve going to the lab, running things, tests and things that involve people. Um, you know, if you're in an archive, again, you have like a nice work-life balance where you've been, I, I'm going three days to Wales to go and sit in this archive. I have to leave when they close. I also spent a lot of time working at home so that I would have people around, family around, but that's a different kind of work-life balance because, you know, maybe you go walk the dog when you probably should be working um, or maybe it's easy to read read some more papers or do another round of edits at 11 o'clock at night. So I definitely wasn't so good at that balance yeah i think i'm better now um at you know having a difference between a workspace and a a fun space if you're working at home for example oh yeah this sort of separating our environment so having one area that's you know you only do studying or scholarly stuff or research uh in that space at that desk and then you have another area even if it's just in the same room right that that idea of sort of dividing the space yeah yeah, that's quite that's quite a powerful one. Kerry, any other sort of significant challenges or things that you found difficult about the process? Um, so, I mean, yeah, doing a PhD was a difficult experience. I think I've mentioned a couple of reasons by now, you know, like yeah. how isolating it could be, um, having a bit of imposter syndrome. I didn't have the best relationship with one of my supervisors and mm-hmm. that really impacted things. And also things just didn't go to plan. Like I went into my PhD with the idea that this one archive was probably going to fill a bulk of my PhD. That was going to be what I analyzed. And when I got done with it, we realized maybe that was like a chapter. There wasn't, there just wasn't enough material there to fill a whole PhD. So then we had to kind of, I say we, meaning me and my supervisor were kind of brainstorming, where else can I look that fits inside the boundaries of my project and the listening experience database project more widely, which was about unsolicited opinions about music so had to be really careful treading boundaries of what kind of sources I could look at and I'm I kind of just like finding new avenues to go down my my PhD how it ended up my thesis how it ended up looked nothing like I would have imagined it and just kind of then having all that information in your head like a hundred thousand words worth of information in your head that's a lot of information to have and to hold and it it felt very disconnected for me because each of my chapters was kind of a different topic entirely. So I had like one on classical music, one on popular music, one on the BBC. um, And I had to kind of find all the interconnecting themes. It can be really daunting because, you know, in my master's, my entire thesis was 12,000 words. When I moved up, like within a year, the first year of my PhD, like 12,000 words, that's a chapter, that's, that's nothing. And all of a sudden your whole scale of like, what things can encapsulate is is really different and I think having very large sheets of paper that they were very quickly a very good friend in terms of like I do just insane massive mind maps that looked a bit like very complicated spider webs you know woven by a very very crazy spider where everything just interconnects all over this massive sheet of paper and that was the only way I could make make sense of things and bring it all together really make it work yeah yeah Alex I mean I guess that that challenge of having like 100,000 words worth of stuff to like pull together that's that's a pretty universal challenge what was what was your experience with that aspect 
Yeah, the final write-up. Um, some days I'm nostalgic for that last month locked in my room, not seeing daylight. And other days I'm like, I don't think it's healthy for a human to go through that. It was, it was, yeah, I think I wish I'd done Kerry's fast mind maps because even the day of my thesis, I was shuffling chapters and thinking, well, actually this flows better if half of chapter three is actually in chapter seven. And yeah, it was, it was structurally just difficult and and to, you know, to echo Kerry's experience of things not going to plan, my thesis originally was meant to be half patient data, half working with people with healthy brains, and it ended up with one patient in one chapter. And so as well, you know, when you're thinking about how do I organize all this information, you often look back at the milestones you do throughout your PhD, you'll do something, or you'll apply for the PhD, which will be quite a long proposal, you'll have a transfer stage at some universities, where again, you write a small a half a chapter or so and sort of talk about what's happening. Then there'll be a confirmation stage where you sort of say, okay, I've got the structure. And so I would look back on these milestones and then be like, well, I don't recognize this at all. This is not at all helpful. And, you know, you follow these rabbit holes and these research questions and you can get so far away from what the central question is that it's very hard to have hold all this information in your head because it's always evolving. It's always shifting. I think it's really difficult to figure out what you don't know at the beginning, though. Like the first year or two of my thesis, one of my supervisors proposed making a database to fit all my sources in, all of these like amazing old diaries and, and letters and things, and just kind of categorize it all. But I didn't know how to structure a database because I didn't know what information I was going to find. I never ended up doing it. I ended up with a very chaotic system of keeping track of everything. But there's that sense that you don't know what you don't know yet, so the whole thing could be like enormously vast and complicated, but you, you haven't found a path yet. And I you kind of don't really find a path until you're writing and rewriting and rewriting. You suddenly go, oh, yes, that, that's how that all links together and, and yeah. kind of tie it all up. Yeah. So we've sort of jumped right to the end of the process, the, the final write-up, Alex. But um, are there any other sort of significant challenges or, or kind of elements of the experience you, you learn from? <laughs> I think... Asking for help is something that if I look back, I could have shaved a lot of time off the length of time it took to do my PhD. And, you know, with PhD funding, right, time is money. It's not just paying for your living expenses, also delays, you know, when you can start living in the real world and get a sort of normal job and things like that. And knowing who to ask, knowing when to ask, and just that there is some level of battle at PhD where you have to struggle with something and try and get there yourself but you are allowed to ask for help and finding that balance of when is it okay to be like I actually don't understand the statistical model at all I need to speak to a statistician or I'm trying to do eye tracking and I can't I can't calibrate these lenses to focus in the right plane that's also something where I could have asked for help and just so many aspects where I would have saved weeks and months um sort of shrugging aside that pride and realizing that actually as a PhD student that that's the critical world student you're not meant to be an expert yet and so knowing that it was okay to ask for help is something i really struggled with yeah yeah i agree it's it's really difficult i think you get told a lot that you will be the expert on your very niche niche by the end and you get told that so much that you feel like you should just know what you're doing automatically um yeah asking for help was amazing completely saved my phd i don't know if i would have finished it without without having you know, that opportunity and taking the opportunity to go and say to somebody, I really just need some help here. I can't do this. Yeah. But I think that's an, it just, again, is another super important lesson for, for life, really. Don't waste the time trying to figure it out on your own. You know, get get some help from someone who's, who's, who's done it before and, and potentially advised others before. So my next question was going to be about some of the 
positives, I guess. So, you know, in both cases, your journeys were not without their challenges and their difficulties, which we've talked a bit about. But I guess looking back, what do you see as some of the the positives from this experience? Some of the memories I have of doing my PhD that I will always treasure are those like moments in archives. This is not really a life lesson or <laughs> anything, but the, just how magical it is to be in an archive and be turning like letters written to the BBC in the 1930s and 40s. They're so old. They're these amazing old documents and you're just turning the pages and you find something and it's just magical and beautiful. And you're like, yes, this is why I'm doing this. Those are really cool memories. But in terms of like things that I think shaped me about it, I'd say I probably hit some of my lowest lows during the PhD. But then finding help, finding someone who would support me and realizing that I actually did have the skills to write a PhD and that I could do it. And then like finally doing it and having a viva where you get praised and and it kind of just reaffirms that you do have skills as a person. <laughs> you have the ability to survive that experience, which for me was a really big thing to to actually kind of push through and get to the end and and make it. So, you know, being called Dr. Edinburgh is, it feels kind of silly sometimes to put it on your post, but also I, I did kind of earn that. You did definitely earn it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if you can come through that experience, heck, yeah, you can take, like, take anything. <laughs> I, do, I do feel like it's kind of made me stronger because I know that it was really hard, but I did. I did get through that. My mental health got through that. You know, I, I survived it. So that makes it sound like it was really terrible. There were amazing bits, but there, you know, there were belts where I didn't think I, I could write and I wanted to, you know, leave. I wanted to quit the PhD, but I'm glad I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Alex. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely had those moments of wanting to quit. I think I downloaded the leaving paperwork a few times, um, which actually now looking back on it, I really it does help on, you know, days to be like, wow, I, I am actually really resilient. I did endure that. Um, so definitely thinking about the achievement, you know, the fact that I can look over and see this you know, huge book that I wrote and I could easily use to prop open my very heavy fire escape doors. You know, it's it's a it's a big achievement. It's cool. I wrote a book. But I think more than that, it's it's the sort of the small wins where I've you know been faced with a problem, you know, how how do I understand the mechanisms of this retinal ganglion cell and how that actually relates to, you know, the complexities of human vision. And you start with a problem and you're like, I'm never going to understand this. There are all these research papers. And I mean, my first year picking up research papers and they would take me two weeks to sort of read and get through. And now I would be able to pick them up and you know, whistle through that in 15 minutes. And that knowledge of something can be really academically challenging, but actually I can get there and I can do it in lots of different fields. And I can feel comfortable in a room where people are discussing science and not wanting to run out with my tail between my legs um, is helpful. So that, that internal resilience, I think is really, is really nice. And that, and that confidence that like Carrie said, you know, you've, you've earned that title that it was a struggle, but you've got through it. It's really nice. Also having the confidence to say, I don't know that I think is something where when I started the PhD saying, I don't know was my worst nightmare. And I, you know, I even cried in a lab meeting once because I didn't know, but I was trying to sort of work it out on the spot. And it was, you know, it was actually a visual illusion that no one knows the answer to. So it was you know, a fruitless <laughs> expedition. But now I feel much more confident when people ask me questions to be able to say, oh, actually, I don't know about that. Or, oh, I haven't read any papers on that recently. What do you think about that? Or is that a field that you're interested in? Is It's fine. It's fine not to know. And you know, I think Kerry was saying, as a PhD student, you're constantly told you're going to be the world expert on this tiny niche. And I don't know whether or not I agree with that fully, 
But being like, just because I now know a lot about retinal ganglion cells or, you know, occipital lobe strokes does not mean I know about, you know, the nucleus accumbens or something. And so it's okay for me to say, oh, how interesting. Please tell me about that. I don't know. Yeah. Is actually a really valuable skill, yeah. especially when it comes to talking to students who come up with fantastic and wonderful questions. But being able to be like, you know, I'm, I'm confident that I know what I'm saying, but I'm also confident enough to say, that's not an area I know as well as you seem to. Please tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. A slightly different thing in terms of saying, I don't know what's going on. I, it really made the whole experience made me value or made me realize that it was okay to kind of say, I'm really struggling right now. Um, a different kind of help maybe, but a lot of PhD students, the statistic is it's insane. It's like one in three or something, isn't it? PhD students really struggle with their mental health. For me, this was kind of the first time I acknowledged that. And having having learned that I can say, I- I'm struggling here, I kind of need some help. That was the first time I had to kind of turn to very official looking people and say that. And that that skill now means that I, I don't know if it's the skill, but you know what I mean? Having done that once, I now know that if I'm having a really terrible time, I can turn around and say, oh no, <laughs> I, need, I need to do something about this. You've, you've flexed that muscle of, okay, I need to flag this. I need to, you know, escalate this. <laughs> I need to take this, uh, take this, to, yeah, take this, another, take this beyond. Yeah. It's another type of asking for help or admitting that you don't know yeah. what's going on, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, which is a real strength. Okay. You both, something you both mentioned, which was leaving the right up to the last minute and it being quite a panic at the end. What would you have had to do? Or like in hindsight, is there a way you can see your past self avoiding that problem? (laughs) How would that have happened? (laughs) For me, it was difficult because it's another one of those weird PhD things. Like you're kind of just thrown into this open like void of like there may be stuff here there may you have to create your own information and your own deadlines and there's kind of just there's no structure you're doing your own research and you have all this freedom and flexibility and for a lot of people for me in particular it was like the first time I was kind of let loose in an ocean quite that big you know there's yeah so like my entire PhD was a battle of kind of like trying to set my own deadlines which I knew I'd set myself so they kind of didn't really feel quite as important as um other deadlines maybe when my supervisor set me deadlines for handing in a chapter that was maybe a bit more motivating but for me it was that kind of balance of I could be doing more research I could read some more stuff but I really should be thinking about how I'm going to process this all and write about it and what my thoughts and argument are actually going to be but it's almost kind of like procrastinating by doing other helpful things and it was always a balance of deadlines which are kind of useful for for motivating yourself but also very arbitrary because if you've got three years a deadline in a month can be pushed back a few months and a few times which is not really ideal I know but deadlines definitely would have helped me and like Kerry said they were deadlines I tried to set myself and then didn't observe because there was no penalty if I missed a deadline the only person I knew had set the deadline was me so I think if I'd made more of a commitment and my my supervisor and I didn't communicate overly much throughout the PhD. So I think if I just told myself I was sending him things and then actually sent them, even if he never got back to me, I think that would have helped because it would have just given me those things of building up. But I think the other thing is I would make deadlines, but I I wouldn't meet them because I had no idea what it 
you know, writing a chapter actually meant, you know, like these, yeah. these deadlines, it wasn't realistic in time. So actually, if I, I think if I'd gone and I maybe talked to someone about what, what does it actually mean to construct a chapter or broken it down much more. And so instead of setting a deadline of, I mean, my, my real deadline was I'm going to have written a hundred thousand words. And then I didn't really have any deadlines before that. So yeah. Yeah, they were unrealistic. But if I had a deadline that was, I'm going to finish the analysis for chapter four next week. And then after that, I'm going to write about the analysis of chapter four. I think those would have been deadlines I would have been able to stick to because they would have actually meant something and been realistic, which none of my deadlines were. And then it all just compounded itself. It's a bit like that thing where you just, you kind of don't really know what, what you need to do when you're starting a PhD. Everything is just a fluid. It may be X, it may be Y, it may take three months, it may take me a week to do this particular thing. And you just never know. Yeah. And building in time for disasters. I had an Oh, my, my second year, I wrote this experiment and I half of the experimental stimuli were expressed in radians and half of them were expressed in degrees. These are not things. And then they interacted. And so, it, you know, maybe an example that's too technical, but it meant that I'd put three months of work into coding up this experiment and a month of collecting data and then realized, you know, after four months that, all, that all, there was nothing useful from any oh of that gosh. time. And I hadn't planned time for repeating experiments and that would have been helpful. And I think if I'd not been rushing at the start, I would have been able to double check my computational code and realize that I you know, made this mistake in the stimuli. So deadlines, not just for when things need to be done, but also with wiggle room and also so you can relieve that pressure and make sure you do things right the first time rather than having to constantly repeat things. Yeah. yeah. And everything does take longer than you think always, I think. Yeah. All right. Thank you both for being so open with uh, the, the realities of the process. I think it's so helpful for both people that they're in, on, on the journey at the moment to kind of hear, you know, they're not alone. You know, so many people go through sort of similar things and everybody's journey is different. But uh, we were chatting about this before we recorded this. I, I think that I've, I've rarely met a, a, a candidate, uh, you know, undertaking this kind of research that has a really easy and effortless and it just all happens like i think it's a like it that nature the, the struggle is like so much part of the nature of it for the vast vast majority of people i think so that's been really helpful and 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 also for the the kind of concrete practical thoughts on sort of specific things that that may have had you know breaking down the deadlines um you know the the praise file idea you know various things along the way that have been been really helpful so um i wondered if maybe we could wrap this thing up with your kind of closing message for people uh maybe in that sort of wide-eyed starry-eyed phase right back at the start when everything is looking forward feels unknown and fluid um yeah what would your kind of message be for for someone starting out on that journey what would you what would you most want to tell them I actually have a friend who's starting a PhD right now and I am slightly envious actually because despite everything that we've said I would and maybe because there's been a distance of like a good few years now since I finished my PhD I would totally do it again maybe maybe not under the exact same circumstances and not at the same university but I I would totally do it again um and I think keeping that wide-eyed starry you know kind of openness is probably quite important especially when things feel like they're absolutely terrible and you want to quit because especially if like me you're doing it for the love of research you kind of just need to remember like how amazing it is to be in the thick of those really juicy bits of research that feeling makes it worthwhile i think and being called doctor at the end 
That's quite cool. Yeah, I, I also, you know, if I could do it again, definitely different circumstances, but but I would. I, I love doing research. It was it was such an indulgent time to be like, I'm just doing this because I'm interested in this question. And, and you know, not all research is like that. Sometimes you are trying to develop, you know, a drug or a treatment. And so there is like a concrete reason. But for me, it really was, I'm just interested in that. So keeping that wide-eyed starry optimism, absolutely. But remembering that it is a job and not letting it become like the, the core aspect of your being aliveness. That's not a phrase, but you know what I mean? Having, if I, you know, making sure you take breaks, making sure you have other interests and you have a life outside it would be my number one recommendation. And discussing really early on when you want to hit these milestones, what happens if you're not hitting those milestones, how you want, even even to the bits of how often you want to meet your supervisor, how often you want to communicate with your supervisor, knowing what to do if those expectations aren't being met. Because I think, you know, as a student, you have to remember the university also has a responsibility to you. And it's okay for you to say, actually, you know, a lot of money is going to this PhD, um, mostly your money, but I would like this level of support and I'm not getting that right now. Yeah, that knowing that would have been invaluable. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Sibyl and Edinburgh, thank you so much. Wasn't that wonderful? If you're feeling inspired, why not leave us a rating and a review in your podcast app? It would make our day. Thanks again for listening and see you soon. Making me want to go and do another PhD now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too, actually.